to Olive Branch Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interview Azat Lamour, an assistant professor of sociology at Hendricks College in Arkansas. Azat and I actually go back, um, well, probably more than 11 years, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, I met Azat um, when I was in college at Ben-Gurion University um, in Barshava, and we met actually doing, doing Perach, which is um, a program where you work in disadvantaged schools uh, with the Bedouin community. And I think Azat could elaborate more on the program and what he does. Um, so I'm really excited to host him today. Um, I knew him as an undergrad, and now we both are professors in uh, U.S. colleges. Uh, so we kind of have similar journeys, but different uh, in a lot of ways. Um, Azad, thank you for agreeing to be interviewed. I think it would be great if you could start out by telling us who you are, um, how you ended up here, your like your journey um, getting to here. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, my name is Azad. Uh, I was born and raised in the Israeli-Palestinian region. Pronouns are he, him, his. Uh, I went to undergraduate uh, college uh, in Israel at Bengalian University, where I started studying initially literature and linguistics, and I slowly made a shift to gender studies and sociology. I, being self-identifying queer and being with complex identities of being Palestinian and Israeli, uh, has always given me that added layer of deeper thinking about how to exist in this world. So I was uh, always involved with LGBTQ politics um, in the uh, Israeli-Palestinian context, both in Palestinian circles and Israeli circles. And um, that was for a few years initially. And then even as I moved to the US, I still worked on uh, these issues within my own research as well. Um, I was also a high school teacher for some time. And that is where my interest in gender in the academia started because I was actually a closeted gay teacher. And in the not not because I was actually closeted, I was completely out. But at the school where I was working, I could not be out. And that is when I started looking into research that talked about the experiences of LGBTQ teachers. But there were not a lot of studies, or actually at all, in uh, the Israeli-Palestinian context in that uh, area. And that's when I started just like wanting to do it. And I went to grad school in Ohio, where I did my master's at University of Cincinnati, and I looked at LGBTQ teachers. Unfortunately, I could not do that with Palestinian teachers, but I did with Israeli Jewish teachers. And then later, as I went in 2016 to the PhD program at NYU, that's when I brought back the Palestinian side of things, and I started looking at education, but in general also queer movement, the Palestinian queer movement, and just like politics of the region and how they affect education and also family life for LGBTQ Palestinians. So that's kind of like very broadly, but yeah. That's great. So you talked a little bit about your identity and how you were, um, you know, a closeted teacher and that interested you in education and incorporating um, the Israeli side initially under your master's and then the Palestinian side, expanding it to the Palestinian side um, on your uh, PhD uh, kind of project. So could you tell us a little bit more about how, you know, what your research found, your experience conducting this research, and why did you think that was really important for you to study and examine that from both sides, uh, the Israeli side 
and the Palestinian side? So the main reason is that I actually being both in social circles of Israeli Jewish spaces and as well Palestinian spaces, being very young, starting at the undergraduate age, I was actually involved and seeing activism in both sides, but they were not interacting at all. So we should really highlight the fact that we have complete movements that are LGBTQ oriented, but they do not really interact with each other because politically they do not really see themselves as aligned in a lot of ways. And I think that makes sense and we can get into the reasons for why that happens. But I remember, for instance, I was at the same time while still doing my undergraduate research, uh, uh, um, studies, I was um, at the same time living in, the, obviously living in the south of Israel, where there is an even more limited space to be an LGBTQ Palestinian, uh, I obviously had to exist in a lot of the Jewish spaces. And those were way more wider, open and active in the south, at least. So when I did that, I actually got to be to contribute in ways that I did not even anticipate would happen, such as, for instance, I used to translate the website um, of the LGBTQ movement, and the one that is based actually the headquarters, which are in Tel Aviv, in, from Hebrew to Arabic. And um, I remember, for example, when I did that at some point, when I just started it, I told the director of Il Qaus, who is actually the, um, Il Qaus is the main LGBTQ organization on the Palestinian side. And I was interacting with her on Facebook at the time. And she said, when I told her that, she was actually not happy about it because she saw that I was like doing something for the Israelis um, and we should not care about them because her politics basically did not see only LGBT aspect of things. She just saw that, that Israel is a colonizing country and we should just not interact with anyone on there as well. It doesn't matter if we are all LGBTQ or not. For her, that, that was not enough of a ground for us to cooperate in any ways at all. So I remember that was my first kind of initial shock when I was like, oh, I thought I was excited about it. And I told her that and she was just like, um, no, like she just did not even like barely responded to it. And then later when I asked her why, she kind of talked about it a bit more. So that's when, and I guess it's sort of a privilege to be able to say that I existed in both spaces because while I was also doing that in the South, I would I used to go to a lot of meetings and seminars that El Paus would organize as well. A lot of these happened in Bejala, right, right, right outside of Bethlehem, outside of Jerusalem. So for me, these were the times that made me question things even more. What are the actual best approaches to LGBTQ activism in this conflict region? And I just kept thinking about it and living through it. And there was a point where I kind of thought existing in both could be possible and easy. But there was a point that I also realized that, wow, this is just a bit too much. So that is why it became important to me, because... I know that a lot of Palestinians are having a hard time living as LGBTQ, but I also know that they're all affected by both sociocultural reasons, while also the conflict and the political situation and the occupation are also obviously affecting how they can navigate these identities. And that is all, again, based on also my own personal experience, because I was in the south of Israel, which is the Bedouin community, which is almost a, like a, a minority within the Palestinian minority in Israel. And when, which I would say it's not necessarily too much worse, but I would say it's definitely not easy compared to some spaces that are in northern, I would say, Israel or even maybe possibly Jerusalem. So I'm just saying that it's a community with some different dynamics that 
it made it even more complicated. But then also for that reason as well, I also had to exist again in both Jewish and Palestinian spaces. So all of that is what made it. That's why I had to choose initially whether I wanted to only do the Israeli research in academia or the Palestinian one. And I ended up thinking that actually I can start with one now. And then as long as I have the option and as long as I'm in academia, I can probably research both. And that's kind of what has been happening. So um, I think it's important to be knowledgeable in both for me personally, because I just I'm beyond the point of trying to satisfy both sides, I'll be honest, because I think that is impossible. And every each side has a lot of critiques against the other. And I think that I learned to find my own space almost outside of both, but while still interacting with both. And I think it's kind of, I don't know, sometimes I see it as a healthy balance, but other days I'm like, this is just not working. So I think it's important to unpack a few things for our listeners who are not familiar with what you mentioned. Um, So Mm -hmm. first of all, let's talk a little bit about the factors shaping the lives of um, people from the LGBTQI community who are either Palestinian citizens of Israel or Palestinian. So you mentioned the occupation as one element, and then you mentioned the societal factors, socio-religious factors. So could we unpack that a little bit more and maybe from your experiences, talk about the Bedouin community and how is it unique in that sense? So I think people tend to usually only think about a certain set of problems when they think about LGBTQ struggles in the Western context. But in some places, like I was born and raised, there was there was a lot of both political, colonial occupation, and then also the cultural factors. So I know the religion and patriarchal factors have definitely shaped my experience because just being out and being gay in the Bedouin community was absolutely not an option. So, and that is basically why I was a lot of times confused because I only saw it as a cultural thing and this is this is it but then later as i got older and as i learned more i did see some connections that made it clear to me that it is in some ways also the political reality that we lived in yet i will probably still refuse to approach it in only in one over the other which is what a lot of lgbtq activists in the region do especially on the palestinian side they tend to think that it's actually more colonial and the more we see LGBTQ liberation as an intersection with the colonial reality, then we can actually, that's when we can start seeing some progress. But I learned really fast that I just, I personally don't know how to ignore the sociocultural factors. And that is exactly what made it really complicated for me. And I think that going forward, I will always advocate for that approach, which says that we should address things both socioculturally and also using efforts to somehow talk about the effect the effect of colonialism in the region on LGBTQ people. So I would say that in general, if I were to capture the Palestinian LGBTQ experience, I would say coming out is not an option for so many people. Um, a lot of people face violence. A lot of people uh, are unable to actually 
escape the region if they had to. We are also talking about a very small country, you know, like combined the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, and then the rest of Israel. That whole region is actually pretty small, and it's impossible sometimes for some people to exist in it and create their own lives away from their families if needed. And that is another factor that I always struggled with because I know that homophobia that we faced is not 100% only due to the uh, conflict or the occupation in the region. So for me, that is why I'm always going to just be saying that it's actually both and we can work on both at the same time. Um, yeah, sorry, I think I kind of like took this question in different directions. But yeah, can you remind me what you wanted to ask again? No, no, I think that's, uh, that's good. It starts us talking about it, um, that, you know, there are social religious elements which exist in a lot of other societies, you know, uh, anti-LGBTQI sentiment, it goes against cultural values, against religious, conservative religious values, and there's, the threat of violence is very real for a lot of members of the LGBTQI community, especially in areas where there's extremely conservative, like rural areas still exist in bigger cities, but in bigger cities, there are more uh, platforms that you can utilize as um, somebody who needs help. But the occupation element, of course, um, what I think maybe uh, is interesting to analyze, and maybe that's where the cause comes from, is pinkwashing and mm -hmm. how that has been used strategically as well. Uh, so maybe if you would like to unpack that for us, that would be interesting. Yeah, uh, in case some listeners don't know what pinkwashing is, it's the idea of states using their LGBTQ friendliness for international relations globally and using that as a way to legitimize some of the things that they do. And also just basically think about it as like splitting the word into pink and washing pink being the gay color supposedly, and then washing almost like similar to like when we brainwash someone. So we basically distort the reality. Pinkwashing also is kind of really aligned with another term, which is homonationalism. And homonationalism is also very similar where we have homo as like homosexual sexuality and then nationalism. So essentially, it just means that when governments or states use LGBTQ people for nationalistic purposes, and that can take a lot of shapes, and it's not actually something that is distinct to a particular set of governments. It happens way more than a lot of people think. But in the Israeli-Palestinian context, the reason it gets really problematic is that organizations that are leading the activism in, in the region, such as Al-Qaus, they think that what Israel does is basically distort the reality and distract from the people or the public the fact that there's an occupation going on when they say or make statements such as, oh, look at how they treat LGBTQ people in their culture, especially more in the West Bank and East Jerusalem. And then as a result, what happens is that Palestinian activists just say, oh, so you're saying that this basically is used as a way to legitimize the fact that you're doing a lot of human rights violations on a daily basis against the Palestinians and or when Israel, for instance, decides to give some sort of shelter or like even an informal asylum status to some LGBTQ Palestinians by bringing them and allowing them to live in Israel from the West Bank. And even then, that when that happens, that still happens within limited conditions. And a lot of these people cannot even work in Israel and their status needs to be approved every three months or six months. And a lot of 
times it just ends up being that these people are not actually given much at all. And a lot of them end up leaving the whole Israeli-Palestinian region altogether. But all of that is just to say that for LGBTQ Palestinians, it just does not make any sense that Israel can keep saying that it's an LGBTQ-friendly country and keep promoting itself as such, while at the same time, it's basically practicing what a lot of LGBTQ activists in Palestine consider an apartheid. So um, that is why it's a very complicated case, because Israel does rely on these facts to say, we are the only gay-friendly country in the Middle East. Um, and that is uh, oftentimes is just used as an excuse almost to say that, oh, no, the other things we do the, the, to the Palestinians are less relevant or just not as important, even though we know that we cannot just be selective with which human rights we adhere to and which are more important. And that is why a lot of these people are just, they don't see any hope or any ability for them to like basically connect their, their gender and sexual liberation without basically ending the occupation. So for them, they go hand in hand. And I think that makes a lot of sense. It's just that I also believe that it's complicated because a lot of LGBTQ Palestinians, especially those who are not political activists in that way, they would just say that their major problems are, are more their families and their communities and the, just the kind of upbringing that they had, which is, again, religious and patriarchal in nature and um, is just very unaccepting of queer life. Yeah, and that's an interesting point to think about it. Um... So yes, it's the same with women's rights as well, that you have two fronts, you have the state, and then you have society and religious institutions, social and religious institutions that you have to address. And sometimes in our case, we have to silence the societal critiques at the expense, or we have to focus on the occupation and Israel, the state, you know, the oppression that the community faces. Uh, because of our location in Israel at the expense of critiquing socio-religious uh, issues. And I understand in our context, since you and I, uh, you know, talk to a Western audience, we write in English, that that could be problematic. And I see why that could be problematic, because then our words could be weaponized to target our community and could be used against us. And that's another problem that we face, right? Um and I always think about it whenever I write something. It's like, who's my audience and what kind of change am I trying to make? But, you know, asking people to be silent about these issues or focus on one, that's also another form of oppression that does not really help us build a more inclusive society. Like, let's say we live in an ideal world where equality exists and the occupation is not a thing and we have like this open democratic system. But if that, like, if we do have that system, then does that mean that LGBTQI issues in our community disappear? And I think we all know that the answer is no, right? That exactly, yeah. It's not going, to, it's always going to be present there. So I think that's an important critique to make. But, you know, not to say that the work that Alcos does is not important. They do a lot of important work. They're a very important platform for a lot of individuals from the LGBTQI community, just to kind of uh, clarify that as well. That just reminded me of like a full like almost 15 years of engaging with these issues that 
I don't know how to exist as both Palestinian and as a queer person at the same time. It's not that these identities cannot exist at the same time. They can. It's just that there are circumstances that all that are almost always imposed on, on us in ways that force us to choose. And I don't think we should be forced to choose at all between the two. It's just that and queer Palestinians should be able to, at the same time, seek queer liberation and also be part of the Palestinian struggle at the national level as well. And the El Court case just made it clear that in order for us to get to that point, there is so much work to be done. And it shows that homophobia is definitely sociocultural, religious, patriarchal, and at the same time is also state-sponsored and, in the Palestinian case, also definitely colonial and occupation-based. So there's a lot to be said about that and how can we learn about this case and move on from there. But I think we just need more conversations about that, both within the Palestinian society and in general, globally and in the Israeli society, because these identities can exist at the same time. So I think it would be interesting to also talk about your interaction with the LGBTQI community like the Palestinian or slash Arab, because some of them won't identify as Palestinian in Israel. Like, how do you classify the approaches there to kind of the situation that exists? So I think that a lot of people think of LGBTQ Palestinians as one group. But even though, I mean, obviously, it's not just the border divisions that we're talking about that make their experiences the way they are, as in, we're talking about Palestinians in East Jerusalem and the rest of the West Bank and then in even Gaza and inside of Israel. But it's such a big and diverse group. And this is something that I usually like to talk about, that LGBTQ Palestinians are diverse, just like the rest of the Palestinian society. And Palestinians in general have a lot of opinions on the conflict in the region, on the occupation and, and every other thing that is going on politically and socially. But for some reason, globally, they're usually just seen as one group. But then when it comes to Palestinians who are LGBTQ or Arabs who are LGBTQ in Israel, this group is also uh, very diverse and they live different lifestyles. So for instance, you have one group that tends to be normally more assimilated or integrated into the Israeli Jewish culture. They speak more Hebrew. They are just living their lives in the bigger cities and they are less engaging directly with the political reality around them. And for them, that is just fine because all they needed was a solution of stepping away from them, from their families as much as possible and living having their careers and having a social life in those big cities, and that works for fine for them. You have others who are definitely more politically oriented, and these people tend to be either in activist circles or in general just very conscious of their politics. Not to say that the others are not, it's just that they some choose to live with more direct engagement with it. And um, these groups tend there, there tends to be a lot of tension between them, but also a lot of Palestinians in general. I think we should remember that they have a lot of opinions on how they think the Israeli-Palestinian conflict should end. And that includes even within the LGBTQ uh, community. So when I research LGBTQ issues in on the Palestinian side, that is one of the things that I actually looked at. I, I asked everyone I interviewed 
what do they think the end of the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict should be like, or what it should entail? And a lot of people said the only thing they cared about is actually the end of violence and human rights violations and all the limitations that are put on people when, when it comes to being able to mobilize and move, and even just the freedom of movement and the economic limitations that are put in the region. So I guess that not all Palestinians are necessarily choosing or thinking that it should be a one state on either end. And it definitely a lot of them do not necessarily think that it should only be one state named Palestine. And that also applies to the LGBTQ community because a lot of them are not concerned with what that state would be called. Many of them are actually more interested in just seeing an end to that occupation as long as that new reality that would emerge would include safety, dignity, and democracy, and all the rights that every person should deserve, whether they are on the Israeli or the Palestinian side. So, and this is something that doesn't get to talked about a lot, because I would say that most of those who lead the Palestinian activist circles tend to be more on the ideology that just seeks or sees decolonization only in this particular way, which is starting a Palestinian state. But while there are many Palestinians who think that, obviously, there are also many who do not necessarily want to end things only in this way. They just care about ending the brutal reality of militarism and violations of human rights around them on a daily basis. So that is something I usually like to talk about when I mention these issues, because Palestinians are more diverse than we think, not only politically, it comes also to their lifestyle, their like religious practices, some of them still maintain those identities. To some family is really important, so they choose to stick to their families, even if that means they have to give up some components of their lifestyle that is, that is related to their uh, gender and sexual identities. But all of these people exist and they are living in ways that I think a lot of what the people outside of the Israeli-Palestinian region here, they, these are experiences are not reflected. That applies to also education, that applies to their families, because a lot of families actually, people tend to think that Palestinians would always immediately be rejected by their families, but there are actually enough families that do accept their LGBTQ Palestinian members. So I would say that is another major difference. And if not, even then, there are still families that my research showed that a lot of families do end up coming around in a lot of ways that they end up accepting it. Some families take longer than others, but a lot of them end up understanding in some way or other. So that is also uh, an important factor in what really life looks like in uh, the Palestinian region. Thank you. I think that's fascinating. So let's talk a little bit about maybe activism in a sense of how have your interactions with activists been LGBTQI rights activists who are also activists that are anti-occupation activists. I also, I was alluding to the person we know who works in Hasbara efforts as well, but it's a different form of activism. It's like the other way, even though he is from the Bedouin community inside of Israel, and maybe kind of unpack these differences. Yeah, I mean, again, I think that there are Palestinians or Arabs in Israel who are everywhere you would look at the political spectrum that you will find some in there as well. So so for me, interacting with activism, I personally could not easily exist in the Israeli activism spaces when I tried to. And again, I did work in those spaces for some time, and it's, it didn't st stop me for a long time. I didn't just quit immediately. But when I did exist in those spaces, 
there was always that assumption that basically limited me in a box of being the Arab of the group or the Palestinian of the group. And when everyone else in those spaces was Israeli Jewish. And I think that this is fine. It's just that sometimes it puts some sort of, I felt like my role was to be in there as a representative or to only be limited with my contribution to what could potentially concern the LGBTQ Arab life in while in Israel. And then that was, that. in that sense, I kind of felt excluded from those spaces. I didn't feel fully that there was a, f- a full sense of inclusion when it came to everyone's ability to, to join those as an activist. But then at the same time, when I look, think back about my experience on the Palestinian side, it was almost similar, just in different ways, because I felt that I wanted, I was young enough at some point that I wanted to learn more and actually be able to engage and critically think about what it means to seek Palestinian LGBTQ liberation. But I remember that I a lot of times I didn't feel comfortable to bring up opinions that were different than the leaders of those activist circles. And just that the conversation was always limited also, again, to the whole idea that Palestinian LGBTQ liberation is tied directly and only to the end of the occupation. And I am an absolute believer that the occupation needs to end, just to be clear. But in those spaces, I did not feel like I could speak up as comfortably as I would have liked. And that is why over time, after a few years, I just, I think that I naturally left both spaces. And that is why I'm able now to engage with them kind of from afar, not just geographically, but also with how I actually like selectively choose who to talk to and how to contribute when I do in a lot of ways. And that is why I would say it's complicated to be LGBTQ, Arab or Palestinian and exist in, I think it doesn't matter which side of activism we choose to look at, it will always be complicated because there will always be those disagreements put on us. And I don't know. What are your hopes for your scholarship? Like, what do you want your scholarship to do? What do you want the people who are reading it to get out of it? For me, the main thing would be to explain to people that while LGBTQ Palestinians experience a great deal of homophobia, it's just unfair. And even possibly it adds some damage to the cause of LGBTQ liberation if we only limit it to one or the other. And by one or the other, I mean either the sociocultural or the anti-colonial. I think in an ideal situation, we should be addressing LGBTQ liberation using both approaches without giving one the priority over the other. I am a firm believer of intersectionality, and I think it worked perfectly historically and even contemporarily. In, in contexts such as the U.S., where we know, for instance, that intersectionality started with Black feminist women talking about the intersection of race, class, and gender. But I believe that in a context such as the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and for LGBTQ Palestinians, the intersection of saying and LGBTQ liberation can only work only with if we look at colonialism and ways to dismantle the militarized reality around LGBTQ Palestinians is a valid reason, but that is not fully intersectional to me personally. I think in order for it to be fully intersectional, it should include also sociocultural aspects such as the patriarchy and religion and other components of the Palestinian society itself. 
So that is what the major thing that I would always emphasize when it comes to my research. And I think and hope that both academics and activists and practitioners would be willing to listen to that message. Right. And then what would be your recommendation for somebody who's curious to read more and learn more about these issues, like maybe a movie, readings? My favorite academic publication on this is by scholar Saad Achan. Uh, his book is named The um, Queer Palestine, the Impact of Critique by Saad Achan. Uh, and he basically talks about essentially kind of something similar to what I just mentioned. And I think Saad Achan basically represents a new set of scholars who are Palestinian and queer and who study that issue from that approach by saying that homophobia in the Palestinian society is just as dangerous and should be addressed the same way we try to talk about the colonization and uh, occupation in Palestine. So that's that would be the first recommendation that I would come up with to start with that book, Saad Alchans. Okay. And maybe to end really quickly, what would you, what um, kind of advice would you give LGBTQI Palestinian activists who are trying to navigate this muddy waters of occupation plus fighting for their own rights within their own society and community? I personally send them validation and my message would be to do things their own way without thinking that they don't have the right to do it because I personally experienced back in the day a lot of backlash about the way I prefer to approach things and I think that my mind I would encourage them to just experience things their own way and to think about things and explore all, all options before they settle on a path that works for them, both ideologically and in the options that they live their own lives, whether they are inside of Israel or in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, because I think that it's a complicated discussion to be having, and this is our lives, they are complicated. So I would say just to not be discouraged or feel less confident to express what they think or to try to engage with all sides of how we really can make that balance of living at the same time without, you know, risking our lives and still being safe, but also while possibly engaging with all potential paths towards contributing to that liberation. And if their choice is to not to engage with it at all, I also think that is absolutely valid. And again, whether they choose to live in Jewish spaces in Israel or whether they choose to stay in their own home, little towns, that is also okay. I'm just saying that I think a lot of Palestinian, LGBTQ Palestinians feel the pressure to fit into one of either or of the narratives or within some limited number of options. And I think that there is so much more to it. And a lot of people might try to put a lot of pressure on them to be only a certain way. But I think I would like to encourage everyone to just be brave enough to look into it in their own way and explore it as much as possible before they make decisions that affect their own lives personally. Okay, well, thank you very much. This was great. Um, thank you for sharing this with us. And I'm sure I will run into you and see you again. Absolutely. Thank you. That was great. 